Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target, or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Hey, everybody. We have a uh, great one today, you know, for a change. Uh, Norm Ornstein. Not so much for a change. We've had Norm uh, quite a bit, uh, but he's the perfect man and woman. Well, he's the perfect person. How am I doing so far, Norm? Uh, I like it so far. <laughs> the uh, he's, he's the perfect uh, person to have on uh, the day after the inauguration. Norm has been with the American Enterprise Institute for several decades now. I think the, the longest surviving uh, member of the American Enterprise Institute. Is that right, Norm? I am. I am now, as of January 1, an emeritus there, meaning I'm still there, but not in the same form. And when I say surviving, I don't mean anyone who's been there is dead. I just meant <laughs> not part of AEI still. That's, uh, that's you know, there are multiple meanings for the word survivor. Okay. Well, you are a survivor. Yes. And um, certainly Joe Biden is, uh, has not just survived, but has attained his goal at, I think, at a very good time in our nation's uh, history to have Joe Biden, someone with tremendous uh, knowledge of the, how the federal government works and uh, someone who, he's not FDR, but he's Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is, has always tried to be a unifier, right, Norm? For his entire career, uh, you know, I met Biden right after he came to the Senate uh, in 1973. I was a young academic and I was writing a book on the Senate and I tried to get in to see a number of senators, uh, which was not an easy thing to do. But I was told I could have 15 minutes with Joe Biden. And I went into his office and came out an hour and a half later um, <laughs> And did you and, get a word in? Uh, and then he said, come back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, another hour and a half. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, even back then, he was remarkably open and candid about the uh, trauma that he had gone through, that he almost didn't go into the Senate, you know, elected at age 29. And before he got sworn in, his uh, wife and uh, infant daughter killed in this horrific car crash, his two young sons in the hospital for months thereafter, but how he was really sort of pushed by Mike Mansfield and the uh, majority leader and others and, you know, what it meant to go into the Senate. I, you know, got to know him and I spent a little time with him when he was in the Senate and I was there in meetings, you know, maybe six o'clock in the evening or five o'clock when the real business started to get done in the Senate and all the socializing that sort of got you into a position where you would have more power. 
And he would just get up and say, I'm uh, catching the train back home. I got to be with the kids. Or sometimes it was, Bo has a soccer match and I'm going back for that. So he sacrificed a lot for family. And there's just an enormous level of empathy there. That's that It's real. He's the right person in the right place uh, at the right time for this. Yeah, I was struck with uh, the night before, the evening before the inaugural, how they did the ceremony to uh, grieve for the 400,000 who have died of COVID. You know, he wasn't president yet. Donald Trump was still president. And it was so stark that Trump had been president all this time and had not once done anything like that. Not only did we see this beautiful and heart-wrenching ceremony on the 19th, but that Biden in his inaugural address took a moment of silence for the 400,000, it's actually probably more like 500,000, who have died from the pandemic and reaching out to their families as well. Uh, That was an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah, I mean, he inherits the White House uh, at a time of amazing crisis. Uh, So many. (laughs) And, you know, uh, Ron Klain, as chief of staff, sent this memo to the senior staff last week saying that they had to deal immediately with four crises, the pandemic itself, the economic crisis that uh, followed uh, from it, as well as, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the crisis of uh, racial equity. And, uh, you know, there's so much more that we have to deal with now. And just digging out from the mess left by Trump the climate crisis that he's now addressed by uh, rejoining the Paris Accords and uh, your dear friend, uh, Ted Cruz, who has tweeted that Biden cares more for the people of Paris than he does for the people of Pittsburgh, which reflects two things. The first is that he's an ignoramus (laughs) because he thinks the Paris Accords is about Paris. The second, that the guy who supported taking away all the votes from the people of Pittsburgh is now expressing concern for the people of Pittsburgh. Uh, So we know that there's going to be a whole lot of opposition uh, from Republicans to dealing, uh, as he would like to, with all of these four crises. Uh, But he's got to grapple with those, as well as the crisis of democracy itself uh, and figuring out how you can govern because there's a governing crisis. And now we know that Mitch McConnell, the minority leader at this point, but uh, with 60 votes needed for the organizing resolution for this 117th Congress, is demanding that uh, there be a guarantee of no change in the filibuster before he will agree to organize and you know let Chuck Schumer be the majority leader and set the agenda. When he says no change to the filibuster, what does he mean? Because right now it's 50-50. There's no chance with Manchin, with Cinema, with that, that we're going to change the filibuster from 50. But there's lots of things you can do that you and I have discussed for years, for example, uh, making the Republicans come up with 41 votes uh, as opposed to making the majority come up with 60 to stop uh, debate. What does uh, McConnell mean by no change? Uh, I think McConnell means no change. He wants to have the ability to filibuster everything, which is, of course, the tactic that he and the Republicans used with Barack Obama as president 
that uh, worked like a charm for them in delegitimizing and blocking and getting seats in the House in 2010 and then winning the Senate in 2014. And, you know, you're- Well, wait a minute. uh, Here's the thing, though. So what? We have we have the majority, you know. Yeah. Just just you know, we go. Oh, oh, I see. You're demanding that. Okay, Mitch. No, we have the majority. No. How about making them have 41 votes in order to continue a filibuster? What Schumer cannot do is agree to any rigid demands by McConnell. There are, as you pointed out, several people who will oppose ending the filibuster rule, eliminating Rule 22 as it exists, but not necessarily oppose changing the rule to make it fit more with the whole notion of what the filibuster is supposed to be about, which is a burden on the minority if they believe strongly about something that they're willing to put themselves on the line to keep the majority from prevailing. And as we have talked about many times, right now the burden's on the majority. Uh, the majority has to get 60 votes there. And that means sometimes, as we saw in the past, dragging in an infirm or hospitalized member of the Senate to get it to 60. They did that with uh, Robert Byrd. I remember him being wheeled in yeah. and his uh, put arm in the air, finger saying, shame on you, shame on you to his colleagues to pull him out of what was virtually his deathbed so that he could uh, vote for for the ACA. I remember I was there very early and on a Thursday evening after we had our last vote, and I go down to the subway in the Capitol, and I say to one of my Republican colleagues, I'll see you on Monday. And he goes, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to be here on Monday. It's a filibuster vote. You know, I don't have to be here. You guys, and, and the reason he was saying that is we needed 60 to break, to break the filibuster, and it didn't matter if they had no one there. Yeah. And and that's when I started talking to you about, wait a minute, wait a minute. How about they need 40? Yeah. Or 41, ra- rather, to sustain a filibuster. You know, what they did through the Obama years was McConnell used this as a weapon of mass obstruction because all you had to do was barely lift your little finger and say, okay, we deny unanimous consent. We're going to filibuster this. You're going to have to take two days for a cloture motion to ripen so you can put it on the table. And then you'll have to take a lot of time to get try and get those 60 votes. And then eventually, if you do get the 60 votes, there are 30 hours allowed of post-cloture debate, and we're going to use every minute of that so we can keep the floor occupied and keep you from doing other things. You know, we can do that even for nominations. They did a number of them that ultimately passed unanimously. And if you change the burden and put the burden on them and require them regularly to have to come up with those 40 votes, I'd even raise it to 45. You can go round the clock and they're the ones who have to be there all the time just in case there's a vote called. And if they have some people who are sick or who can't make it back to uh, Washington, that's the problem for them. And if you're in the majority, schedule votes at times that might be inconvenient for them. And what it means is They can't use the filibuster for everything. They could use a delaying tactic for a smaller number of things. But if they do that, then you're going to get a real spotlight on them. You know, just to take uh, one good example right now, imagine if uh, we had the John Lewis Voting Rights Act brought up as a separate bill, something widely popular 
around the country. It's for bringing voting rights to people in the name of one of the great icons of the 20th century. And they decide to filibuster that. The majority leader says, we're going to go round the clock on this one, just like the old days when the segregationists blocked civil rights bills, the new segregationists. And it's going to get huge amounts of attention. And the burden is on them, not just to have to be there at three in the morning for the votes, but to explain why they're against voting rights. Let's explain what this is. is it's, it's a response to Shelby County. Yes. And Shelby County was a Supreme Court decision that struck down the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, which meant that these uh, places in, that had been designated uh, in the original Voting Rights Act had to get preclearance from the federal government to change their election rules and to, to make sure that they weren't disenfranchising people, which they, those districts, those voting areas had done before, and they tended to be in a lot of southern states. So Shelby County got rid of that, got rid of preclearance, and immediately after Roberts, by the way, wrote that decision, as soon as that happened... Texas, South Car- uh, North Carolina, all started rewriting their their rules and trying to suppress votes of black people. So the new Voting Rights Act would just extend this to every voting district in America, right? Yeah. You know, when Shelby County came out, Robert's decision, he basically said, look, we've gone through all this time and they haven't tried to do laws that uh, would block people of color from voting. So everything's just fine right now. Of course, they hadn't done it because the law had been in place. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, in her dissent said, this is the equivalent of saying, okay, it's been raining. I've had the umbrella up and I'm not getting rained upon. So I guess it's fine. I can throw my umbrella away. And of course, it wasn't just Texas and and North Carolina. Shelby County itself, the day after this decision, went back to uh, voter suppression actions. Yeah. Okay. So yes. So (laughs) that's right. And 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 there were some egregious egregious uh, changes in North uh, North Carolina. That when the Fourth Circuit, when they finally got to rule on it, said that they had targeted blacks with almost surgical precision. Uh, but that would be a good standalone one to test the filibuster. Yeah. And, you know, so would uh, background checks, uh, universal background checks. For uh, guns. Yeah. You know, supported by 90 percent of Americans. Now, now, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is part of a big omnibus bill that the House has passed, right? Yeah, they passed. They made it H.R. 1, which signals its priority, a big democracy package uh, last Congress. They've introduced it again. And we have a counterpart in the Senate that was uh, crafted by Jeff Merkley, which will go in as S1. Okay. Do you think it would be more strategic just to go with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Just start with that, because that seems to be pretty powerful way to begin. You know, I can imagine, at least as a strategy, bringing up the big package, talking about how we have real challenges in our democracy, challenges in elections, challenges with campaign finance, challenges with uh, gerrymandering, and that almost certainly would be filibustered by McConnell. And then coming back with uh, the specific element with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The filibuster, again, in our plan would require Chuck Grassley uh, to sleep overnight 
on a an air mattress in the Capitol, right? So Chuck Grassley, uh, 87, (laughs) 86-year-old Richard uh, Shelby, 87-year-old Jim Inhofe, soon-to-be 80-year-old Mitch McConnell, you know, a lumpy air mattress, most likely, or a lumpy mattress. That would, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. We've got an agenda out there, and if we're back to business as usual, if what we get is a few platitudes from Republicans uh, about how now it's time to work together. And then they fall back on the strategy of blocking everything that they can. McConnell filibustered more executive appointments or nominees uh, of, of Obama's than had been filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. And all designed to make it difficult to govern. And, you know, we're seeing now Biden comes in, the normal practice would be to hold uh, confirmation hearings on the uh, critical cabinet nominees significantly in advance. We didn't get any done until yesterday. And now we see at least a few that are being blocked by the likes of Josh Hawley uh, and Ted Cruz. And uh, Tom Cotton at least finally uh, gave up on blocking the uh, confirmation of uh, Avril Haines as the director of national intelligence. You know, imagine now, after we know that the Russians have hacked into our most sensitive government sites and probably have a capacity to bring us to our knees, after we know of all the foreign threats that are out there, with some question about whether some of them might have had agents in the Capitol on January 6th, that after all that, we had senators who were willing to keep a smooth transfer of power to those who will be in charge of intelligence, of homeland security, you know, the most sensitive positions. Even though the threshold's been reduced to 50 instead of 60 for these executive nominees, they can still be delayed. And uh, we're seeing some of that happen even as we speak. We haven't even started on what this president needs to address right now, which is covid Obviously, getting everyone inoculated, getting, you know, he's he signed executive orders, and one of them is to, in all federal property, you have to wear a mask. I mean, to start doing some common sense stuff to address COVID. But we're also, he's also going to have, he's going to try to pass a $1.9 trillion COVID package, which includes uh, relief for families and also a stimulus package. Is, do we have infrastructure within that package or that would be something? I can't believe that the one thing that Trump didn't try to do is infrastructure. I mean, here's a guy who his whole thing is, I'm a builder. Yeah. And he had run in 16 on a trillion dollar infrastructure package for the country. And he never did it. He never. <laughs> and everyone wants it. I mean, Americans want our airports and our roads and our uh, bridges and uh, our rail to look like something like the rest of the developed world. 
every week um, I, I would uh, do a tweet. This is week 100 <laughs> of Infrastructure Week. This is week 150 of Infrastructure Week. And we got to week 200 of Infrastructure Week and they never brought up an infrastructure package. It was one of the most bizarre elements of the Trump administration. You can do infrastructure, I think, without having to use any techniques like reconciliation because it is so broadly popular. And you include things like broadband, high-speed broadband for rural areas and for the urban spots, and you get broad support. Uh, so that's doable. You know, you mentioned COVID, and there a couple of things that occurred to me just this morning. Biden and, and Ron Klain announced that they were going to do a national strategy for the rollout of the vaccine. And uh, I've seen reports now this morning that in a whole lot of states, because the Trump administration did not do any kind of a national plan, they dumped vaccines on states. And in many cases where the states had no plan themselves, they've had large amounts of the vaccine that they had to throw out because they didn't have uh, the ability to store it for any length of time, or they took it out and uh, they didn't have the people ready to uh, actually administer the vaccine. Or uh, in uh, one case where you had a county in Michigan that was all ready to go because they'd been promised the Pfizer vaccine, which has a different uh, type of equipment needed to refrigerate it. And instead, they got the Moderna vaccine, which they couldn't use, and it was no longer available because it spoiled. You know, I, the term I used throughout the Trump administration was cacistocracy for government uh, of the worst sort by the worst and most corrupt among us. And even what's supposed to be Trump's signature, the Operation Warp Speed, they screwed it up completely. And the challenge now for Biden, because during the transition, we know they didn't get cooperation from their uh, the COVID task force inside the Trump administration. So they didn't know exactly what was going on, is they have to get from zero to 100 in uh, a day or two. For some reason, uh, and it was because I guess he didn't want to take responsibility. He put this on the states and at the same time impoverishing the states because they weren't getting revenue because we're in yeah. this horrible. Yeah. So they don't Brilliant. have the resources to distribute the vaccine the way we need to. So part of the stimulus package is to give states the resources they need, but then it also has part of the uh, addressing COVID is co is national coordination, because this is not just a national pro uh, problem, it's a global problem. I've said this before, in Ebola, and Ron Klain was the uh, Ebola czar, we led a global effort on Ebola. And this guy, Trump, to me, it's like after Pearl Harbor, FDR saying like, ah, you know, this is this is really just Hawaii's problem. I mean, this has been crazy and and also yeah. tragic. You know, the American carnage that he spoke about has been his performance during this and his ig ignoring it, his lying about it. That has been American carnage and that's the worst thing he's he's done and that's saying a lot well we're, we're talking about four hundred thousand people whose lives have been lost we would have lost every place is lost 
people, yeah. but it didn't have to be this. And, you know, and I, by the way, we have 5% of the world's population, and I don't know what it is now. It's like 17 or 18% of yeah. the fatalities from this. So th- this, this is, uh, there's a lot of death on this man's hands. You know, I, I have uh, close friends in Australia, and I've been there a number of times. And you look at how Australia dealt with this. Uh, you know, a conservative prime minister, but who listened to the experts and from the beginning put in place the protocols, the social distancing, mask wearing, uh, selective uh, shutdowns of indoor spaces, made sure that there was plenty of protective equipment available for medical people. And they've had trace elements of this kind of crisis. Sydney, uh, which has a population of over 5 million people, they went into a partial shutdown because they had just a, a couple of weeks ago, like three dozen cases. So we know from experience of other countries that if you just did the things that were obvious, that you could minimize the impact of this. What's interesting is that you characterize the Australian prime minister as conservative, as if that should mean anything in addressing a pandemic. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine saying like, well, you know, that's a, there's a conservative approach to a pandemic and a progressive? No, it's the same damn thing. And the idea that in our country, it became a political statement not to wear a mask. That's because of Donald Trump. The president's the number one opinion leader, and Trump was a particular opinion leader with a large share of the population. And when he led us away from uh, common sense things, it's taken us down a path that is that, of course, remains in place because you're still going to have all those Trump supporters who will refuse to wear masks because he told them not to, basically. He made it political. Yeah. And then, of course, the again something I talk about all the time too: the two different universes of information. It became a political issue. So this, all the information where so many Americans get their news, they said, "This is this is a fake. This is a fraud. This is bogus. This pandemic isn't real." And that has just led to so many of these deaths. And that did not have to be. No. Of course, what we now know, too, is from uh, the Bob Woodward tapes, which somehow have just been sort of shoved to the side. But we know that from the beginning, Trump knew that this was something spread uh, in an airborne fashion and that the way to reduce the spread dramatically was for people to wear masks so that uh, the airborne particles wouldn't get through. And he deliberately avoided the common sense things and and set the stage for exactly the opposite. You know, this isn't just neglect. This is knowing actions that caused hundreds of thousands of deaths. And that transcends everything else. The corruption of Trump, the uh, connivance with Putin, the turning a blind eye to uh, the assassination of a journalist done by the leader of Saudi Arabia, and on and on and on, and the child separation even. This is, this is just an, an amazing stain on history. Okay, uh, we, we, have to, we have to break for a commercial, and uh, here it is. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So the four uh, the four crises that Klain laid out that you brought up at the beginning of this, uh, one, the pandemic, two, the economic fallout from the pandemic and just the state of our economy, and also the scandalous gaps in, in wealth and income in our country, which we need to address. That's a crisis in our country in and of itself. Climate and then uh, race. Yeah. And those are what... Uh, Joe Biden is inheriting. So let, let's go into some of these. We've talked uh, about uh, the pandemic. Let's talk about economics uh, and what Biden will be needing it to do and what Democrats will need to do. And uh, again, that uh, will also go back to uh, reconciliation because yeah. reconciliation, why don't you explain what that is to the folks? It's going to be very important in this administration. Reconciliation is what was started as a very small and arcane budget process going back to the Budget and Impoundment Control Act enacted after Richard Nixon. And the idea was Congress is going to do a budget and it's going to set out spending and revenue targets. And then at the end of the year, in theory, after we've done that, we will need to reconcile those and pull together a resolution that sends out directions to all the different committees that here's what you got to do now to make sure that we meet the targets from the budget. But it's been used in very different ways over the years. The advantage of it in the Senate is that it requires an expedited, certain up or down vote with only a majority required to pass it. And while it has constraints, it's got to be something that is directly related to the budget itself, that it can't increase deficits over a 10-year period. That's something that was put in by Robert Byrd when he was the majority leader of the Senate, and it's called the Byrd Rule. But it's been used in and abused uh, over time. So the huge tax cuts implemented by George W. Bush in 2001 and 2003 were done to avoid a filibuster by Democrats in the Senate with reconciliation. As you mentioned earlier, the Affordable Care Act, at least a large portion of it, it was kind of awkward because some of the elements that you'd want to include, you couldn't, that weren't so much budget related, but it got through the Senate eventually in the House uh, because of reconciliation. I should point out, by the way, that we did pass it with 60 votes originally. And then you remember Scott Brown 
won the Senate seat and suddenly he had 59 and then the House. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we, the, the best solution would have been the House to pass exactly what we had passed in the Senate. They didn't because they had worked very hard on what they wanted to do on the ACA. So they had a lot of pride of authorship. And as a result, we had to go to reconciliation in the Senate and and vote that way. And that puts on certain kinds of constraints, but you can do a remarkable amount in reconciliation. You know, for example, the, the bird rule saying it, you can, it can't increase the deficit over 10 years. You know, if, if part of what you're passing is tax increases on very rich people, that's not a problem. No, and you can do that. And rather than uh, even dealing with the filibuster, you can alter the bird rule a little bit. So for example, you could raise an objection to a $15 minimum wage because it's not directly budget related, you know, amend the bird rule a little bit, and you could bring that in as part of a package. And you could do infrastructure, and you could do a lot of things that you would want to do to get the economy uh, moving, and maybe even at least in a small way to address uh, the uh, wealth and uh, income inequality. But, you know, there's a lot you can fold in there and not just uh, enormous uh, tax cuts. This brings up something to me because you're talking about ways around the, uh, you know, uh, being able to add like the $15 uh, minimum wage or something. And the person that came to my mind was the Senate parliamentarian. <laughs> yeah. Who has to make these decisions. And then what came to my mind is being able to use 50 votes plus the vice president to override the parliamentarian, which has been done a number of times, right? Yes. Like, for example, uh, Gorsuch didn't get 60 votes. He got a majority, and that was, I believe, over the objections of the parliamentarian. But the 50-plus the can overrule the parliamentarian, right? So the way in which the Senate rules have been changed in the past, and that was a good example uh, when uh, Mitch McConnell decided that he would lower the bar uh, required for Supreme Court justices is that you have the parliamentarian rule that under the rules, uh, this can be filibustered. And there's an appeal uh, of the ruling of the chair. And in most circumstances, the appeal of the ruling of the chair only requires 50 votes. And it's a backdoor way, but an effective way of changing the rules. And in fairness to the Republicans, and this is way too complicated because, it, and but the complication is Mitch McConnell is still the blame, but Harry Reid did the same thing on uh, other federal judges. So I just, I, 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 it's, it's more complicated than that, but I just wanted to be fair to say my point really is that you can do this. You can change the rules. Uh, and with uh, Kamala Harris in the chair, she can rule that uh, the Byrd rule actually does not apply to a $15 minimum wage. And the parliamentarian right. would say, oh, yes, it does. And then <laughs> uh, you could have an appeal and uh, they, you could make that work. Um, so but we need all 50 to, to hang in there on that, well, uh, which yeah. you don't know if Manchin would, you know, or something like that. But and this brings me to uh, will Schumer be Mitch McConnell? It's not just will he be Mitch McConnell and being ruthless in using the rules to accomplish his own objectives, but will he be clever enough to figure out ways to frame all of these things and to use them in a fashion that will actually be effective? And I would say uh, the jury is very much out on both of those. 
and I, you know, I will give him his due in this case uh, for Schumer. The tricky part for him is one that you uh, alluded to a little bit a minute ago. He's only got 50. And among the 50, you have a Joe Manchin um, and you have a Kristen Cinema, and you have some others who are going to be a little bit uneasy about pushing too far. And you've got a Dianne Feinstein whose uh, days are uh, probably not quite as robust as they were a few years ago. She'll vote the way the last person talks to her will vote. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure how long she'll stay in the Senate. And whether Chuck Schumer can do as well as Harry Reid did in bringing together those 60 votes that ranged from back then from Bernie Sanders to Joe Lieberman and Ben Nelson. That was 60, though. That's We literally had 60. You had 60, and he had to get every single one of them. And you know it's possible in some issues that Chuck will be able to get a few Republicans and maybe then lose a couple of Democrats. Whether he's skillful enough to do that in a fashion where the Democrats he loses are at the left end of the spectrum and not have his caucus be very upset. How skillful he is, that's really going to be an important question for Joe Biden. And also, he has a House, which the margin in the House is what, right now, only three or something? Well, right now, there are, you know, it takes uh, the the, uh, 435-member House, uh, if it were completely filled, would need 218 votes to make a majority. And right now, there are 219 Democrats because three have left to go into the administration. We have one seat that's still a little bit up in the air probably go to the Republicans. You know, that gives them a little bit of a cushion because you don't have the full uh, house in place. You had one Republican who died of COVID uh, before being seated, but you have almost no margin for error in the house either. Yeah. So um, he's got to think about that in addition to our, the 50-50. Yeah. Okay. So he's going to want to increase taxes on the wealthy and the unbelievable gaps in wealth and income in this country are just kind of a sin. Uh, And he'll be able to do that, won't he? You would sure think so. And, you know, the Biden proposal from the campaign was to increase taxes only on those making $400,000 a year or more. And it's worth adding here that, you know, we've had this insane wealth and income gap, but the fact is it's widened dramatically during the pandemic. Large numbers of Americans hit so hard, their incomes disappearing, their costs going up, businesses uh, struggling. But that group at the top, the one-tenth of one percent, have grown insanely richer during the pandemic. They've managed to find ways to do just fine in some ways and for some of them even better. Uh, We're going to take a a short break. Uh, We'll be right. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Back with uh, Norm Ornstein. Uh, a climate. Boy, oh boy, did we harm ourselves. And of course, again, that's going to be one of these issues that these two universes of information were divided on, of course. But we're rejoining Paris. We do have a team together. Now, this speaks to your, uh, how how do you pronounce it? Uh, Cacistocracy. Caca. It's government uh, by the worst and most unscrupulous among us and the worst kind of government. And literally, it comes from a Greek word meaning excrement. Okay. Well, those guys are going. They put excrement in the swamp. That's what happened. Yeah. That's what this, instead of draining yeah. it, he put the excrement in it. But now, look, one of Biden's uh, strengths here is he knows how the federal government works. And he's appointing people. And there maybe people have issue with, oh, their their establishment or their, uh, they're not progressive enough, although he's been lately uh, the CFPB and some others have been uh, very, very progressive folks. But these people know how things work and they're they're professionals and they're really smart and they're not crooks. And boy, do we need that now. And, and we have very competent, Gina McCarthy is the sort of the climate czar, right? Yes. And, and uh, former EPA administrator, and thank God, she's terrific. No, a, a, a whole crew of people who know just what they're doing. I mean, this is not an easy issue to deal with. Uh, it has to be dealt with globally, which is why rejoining the Paris Accords is important. It's not just uh, symbolic. But we also know that the uh, curve of dealing with this has not flattened enough. And, you know, uh, There are potential just huge catastrophes ahead, especially if you think about the uh, permafrost in Alaska and the Arctic that's been there for thousands and thousands of years. And trapped underneath it is all that carbon, and it's starting to melt. And if all that carbon gets released, we could end up with a much, much bigger disaster on our hands in a short period of time. And this is why Lisa Murkowski is is one of the Republicans who understands this is happening because roads are collapsing, highways are collapsing in Alaska. Villages have to be moved in Alaska because the permafrost is melting. And you're right, that releases a hell of a lot of CO2. We should have been dealing this long, long time ago. And it's uh, dire. And the, of course, Trump was a, an absolute disaster. And we're going to pay a price for those lost four years. You know, there are a couple of things here that I I think are worth mentioning. One is this was always going to be difficult to deal with because it requires short-term pain for the theory of the long-term gain. But the theory 
that has been powerfully uh, put out by an overwhelming consensus in the scientific community. But the second part of this is at the core of the deep dysfunction in the Republican Party that continues to this day is the attacks on science and expertise. Of course, we've seen that play out with the, the pandemic, that the people who were put in charge were quacks, quacks who have tried to spread the idea that masks are not effective and that if you could get to herd immunity by infecting as many people as possible with this and ignoring the scientists. But the attacks on the scientists when it comes to climate, the unwillingness to believe any of the realities around us that are now dogma in the Republican Party have just made the uh, task of dealing with this over the last uh, 20 years so much more difficult. And, you know, it's a, it's a larger problem that we have, and it's a problem that continues because if you lose uh, the ability to rely on expertise and if you attack the experts, then you're not going to be able to deal with a whole range of problems that come along. And it's health problems as well as the climate ones. Once you start down that path, it's like a cancer itself. It leaches into every area. And as you say, climate is tough because it is global and also because the worst effects of it are going to be seen decades from now. It was amazing watching uh, that storming of the Capitol and looking, it was white. I mean, I guess, of course, of course, these were white supremacists, I guess. Yeah. But uh, man, that was clear. We've got a real challenge from white supremacists and white supremacist groups. And we know that it's not simply some of these terrible groups out there that have tried to promote a race war and that are heavily armed, that are so directly involved in this, but the fact that some of them have infiltrated police uh, around the country and the military, and some of them active duty or retired military, off-duty police officers who were there storming the Capitol were a part of this. We know that we had this unprecedented act for the inaugural where we had 25,000 National Guard in the city uh, here, but they had to do background security checks on all of them out of a fear that they might be infiltrators and that at least a dozen were blocked from coming, a few because they were affiliated with extremist groups. Out of out of 25,000, let me say that, and, and I have spent quite a bit of time with the military just over my course yeah. of my career doing USO shows, and it is the most integrated institution in our country. And I have been impressed with the military in the way they've done that. How many people did you say were were kind of well? It was a dozen out, out of twenty five thousand, yeah. so it's not huge. No, but, but you know, it's, but it just it's becomes a, a concern. I think it's more of a concern with police departments. Well, we've seen that, and yeah. uh, we don't want to defund the police. We want to reform the police. <laughs> Unfortunately, that language ha had been used, and but. We have to make it clear that what we need to do is get not just get rid of the bad apples, but get rid, rid of the bad apple trees that are producing the bad apples. And um, there's a whole bunch we need to do. And, you know, there are a lot of a uh, lot of ways of uh, actually building support from within police ranks for doing the kinds of reforms that would be very, very uh, helpful in taking away some of the terrible tensions that exist in, in those communities. I think we have to recognize that we've got a larger problem with the issues of race 
than just these uh, violent white supremacist groups. You know, we have our parties being divided along racial lines. Uh, The Republican Party made slight inroads with some groups, including some uh, pretty impressive gains with Hispanic groups in South Florida and Texas, small ones at the margins with African-Americans, but it's fundamentally a party of white people. And the Democratic Party increasingly is a coalition of minorities with a significant number of uh, white Americans. But, um, you know, if you take the political tribalism that we have and, and add in a racial component, it makes it tougher. You know, Biden's inaugural address focused significantly at different times on the challenges that we have with systemic racism. And he used the term systemic racism. And he talked about bringing everybody together. And it was striking to see that on Fox and and some of these other places, they said he used divisive language. The divisive language was because he talked about race, Uh, because from their perspective, anything that talks about racial inequities, uh, about systemic racism, is divisive because they don't like it. And we know from a lot of our public opinion studies uh, where the votes were less about economic insecurity directly and had that racial component. White working class Americans in a lot of cases don't like the idea that uh, they may be losing their uh, position in society, not just losing their jobs. And that's a challenge, uh, boy, a big one. And thank goodness we've gone from a president who openly tried to instigate more racial division and divide and talked about people who were racist as uh, being very fine and uh, a president who's going to do everything he can uh, to try and reduce those tensions and create a different society. Uh, That's a huge challenge. It's been there, of course, since the beginning. Part of that is your status in society. There's a big tension in in our society where a lot of people who used to feel that being in their community and being someone in their community and being a good person, that's where they got their status and uh, are, are feeling because of a lot of different things in our society that may have nothing to do with race, but have to do with just the way we live and economics are making people feel really like they've lost just their status. Uh, and I think that's more a sociological fact. And But I think it's informing part of this, um, th- this insecurity and this anger that sometimes finds its way into just ignorant uh, racism. I'm saying something I think is maybe above my pay grade in terms of sociology, <laughs> but I, th- I think I'm right. And um, yeah, the, I, I did watch a little Fox and they did bridle at, uh, and did say it was divisive to talk about systemic racism and to talk about white uh, supremacy, but those exist. Those are a big problem. And we just saw it the storming of the Capitol, that was, I mean, if you're wearing a Camp Auschwitz um, yeah. sweatshirt, or you're kind of making a statement. <laughs> don't you think? You don't have to strain to interpret it. Uh, hmm. 
Yeah. Hmm. Ironic? Just like, is uh, that ironic, Charlotte's you play. think, from that guy? No. No. No, no it turns out it isn't. You know, in Charlottesville, of course, chanting Jews will not replace us. There's a lot of that. You know, there's a, a historic parallel here that's an interesting one. And it's the Reconstruction one, of course. And we had uh, Andrew Johnson when he became president, uh, uh, when Lincoln was assassinated, doing what he could to reverse the moves in Reconstruction towards bringing uh, the uh, freed slaves back in as political actors. There were actually a number of uh, African-Americans elected to legislatures. They, they were doing reasonably well. Then we had another election in 1876 with parallels to this one that ended up being decided in Congress. And a part of the compromise there was that they would turn a blind eye to some of these efforts to uh, in recon- uh, Reconstruction. And of course, a part of it was it that Jim you Crow. had a natural alliance uh, in the South between poor white sharecroppers who were exploited by plantation owners and the newly freed slaves who were back to being sharecroppers or taking small parts of land and could have joined together against the economic elite. And the elite found that the way to manage it was to turn it into a race war. And uh, that's when, of course, we saw the Ku Klux Klan emerge and all kinds of other things. And it's not exactly the same, but there's a, a parallel here that you can take economic concerns with a period of this yawning uh, uh, inequality and mitigate it for the elite by uh, making it a values issue so that working class white people and poorer white people don't focus so much on their own economic conditions as on the fact that they're being aggrieved while uh, others are being favored. That's a you know an ages old set of issues, but there's a significant parallel here. And hopefully Joe Biden can begin to move that uh, arc of the moral universe, uh, bending it a little bit more towards justice. That speaks to the importance of something like the 1619 Project. And it's amazing to see someone like Tom Cotton so bridle against that and prohibit it from being, you know, from giving federal money to schools that any federal money to schools that uh, use it in their curriculum. <laughs> and, well, and of course, uh, we saw the administration then come up with this sort of ridiculous 1776 project, which was an attempt to whitewash the whole issue of slavery and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, racial injustice. Yep. And they just, as he was going out the door, they, they brought that out yep. and uh, brought a disgusting piece of work that was so appropriate well uh norm thank you again for bringing so much uh perspective and clarity and uh, wisdom to the al franken podcast thank you for a podcast that brings so much wisdom and clarity oh no 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 it's you Who brought the wisdom and clarity? I just <laughs> a platform for it. Oh, that's what you were thanking me for. I got it. I got it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, we're both great. And your yeah. own wisdom and clarity that comes with the platform of wisdom and clarity that you bring to the American people. Thank you for saying that. I, it took you a while. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.